What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking about something I get a lot of questions about and that is set point theory or you know, basically does your body really have a set point that it will defend? We will attempt to answer that question as well as if so, can we do anything realistically to move out of that outside of that set point? Can we stay outside of that set point? Can we change it permanently? And is all weight loss futile? Like is this all predetermined by genetics or not? I will break down generally two prominent theories, the lipostat model and the dual intervention model that attempt to explain this. And it might be a little bit dense. I'm gonna try and keep the, keep it to the basics, keep it easy to understand, um, but stay with it. Um, we're gonna discuss the limitations of each model and I'll also tell you what I think they get right. I will give you all my thoughts on everything at the end. Uh, and if you guys want even more information on this, even more in depth, I'm gonna link an excellent episode from Sigma Nutrition uh, which is a wonderful podcast that you should follow by Danny Lennon and Alan Flanagan that discusses this as well. It was my inspiration for the episode, but I really wanted to give my personal thoughts on things. So just to set the scene a little bit with some of my thoughts before we jump into breaking down these two theories, I'll start by saying there are absolutely genetic factors that predispose someone to higher or lower body weight range. Uh, those absolutely exist. Just like there are genetic factors for everything, there are going to be certain genes a uh, certain combination of genes that predispose you or one to higher or lower body weight ranges. But the age old quote of, you know, genetics load the gun and environment and behaviors pull the trigger certainly holds true here. It's not all genetics. There's a nature and a nurture component. We're going to talk about, you know, how you are affected by the way you were raised, your environment. You know, we live in this like quote, obesogenic food environment right now with, you know, e easily or, or readily accessible, cheap, hyper palatable, you know, high calorie foods, we're gonna talk about your choices and your behaviors and how this, you know, all of these things play together to create maybe a more, more applicable definition of what a set point might actually be in 2021. The truth is the idea of a set point or settling point is likely an intersection of physiology, environment, genetic predispositions and behaviors. It's not any one single thing, right? More on that a little bit later. So the first theory that we're gonna discuss is the most common theory that most people have heard about or you know have read about, and it is called set point theory, or you might have uh, heard it named the lipostat model. Essentially what, this set, what set point theory says is that there are physiological processes that push you towards weight gain or weight loss that kick in like a thermostat if you move outside of a certain range or a certain set point, set point body weight. Uh, AKA when you lose weight, these mechanisms kick on, to make sure that you gain weight and move back towards your set point, or if you gain weight, they kick on, uh, other maybe other mechanisms kick on to make you lose or at least stop gaining so you don't exit your set point. This is known as a feedback loop. So how does set point theory uh, attempt to explain how this feedback loop works? Well, we first thought that it would be, uh, that it was coming from leptin. Leptin is a satiety hormone that is secreted by the fat cells the more fat you have, the more leptin you secrete. And so it was thought that the more fat you have, the more le leptin you'd be secreting, the more satiated you'd feel, and that would cause you to stop gaining weight. So that this you know, higher secretion of leptin would be the thing that's telling your body, okay, it's stop, stop gaining weight now. You're feeling more satiated on average, you don't need to eat as much, and you would stop gaining weight. And vice versa, if you lost weight, you'd be secreting less leptin and you'd get hungrier. And that would over time kind of predispose you to gaining that weight back. And it seems simple enough, right? I mean, if this was the problem, then we thought, okay, this is great. We know what the issue is. We'll just give people with obesity more leptin and they'll be fine. You know, uh, maybe, you know uh, maybe they're just, there's something wrong and these people aren't producing enough leptin, right? And, and honestly, at, at first glance, it's like, wow, this would be super simple. We just, you know, give people more leptin. They'll be more satiated. They'll be able to eat less and it'll fix itself. 
we tested this and it didn't work. Um, it only works if you have congenital leptin deficiency. It doesn't work for the average person. So it was like, okay, shit, we're gonna go back to the drawing board. So maybe leptin plays a role, but we can't just inject people with leptin and that cures obesity. It's not that simple. So maybe it wasn't the leptin itself. You know, we moved on to this idea that maybe we are just resistant to the effects of leptin. So maybe people who have obesity are quote leptin resistant, right? Um, and and does and, and we thought, okay, if this is the case, then weight loss should fix this. And so people who have obesity, maybe they're leptin resistant because of the weight gain. And if they lose that weight, then they would become more leptin resist, uh, leptin sensitive, you know, similar to the idea of insulin sensitivity and, and obviously not the same from a mechanistic standpoint, but from an idea standpoint. Um, the problem is this also didn't really work. You know, we did, we saw that bariatric surgery didn't fix this. So it, it the, the loss of fat cells didn't increase this leptin sensitivity and did not fix the issue. And so it does seem that it's the brain and not directly the fat cells that's probably at the center for this genetic predisposition for body weight. Um, but we are probably still in a position where leptin does play a role, um, but it does seem that it's the brain that plays, is, is really at the center of this. Um, so what, what do I think that uh, the lipostat model or set point theory gets right? By the way, that's the end of set point theory, essentially. Um, so what do I think they get right? I think they get what they get right is that there are physiological processes that do kick in in response to weight gain and weight loss beyond a certain point. AKA, there are genetic factors that predispose us to certain body weights. That is true. That is true. This is what I think they get right. You know, we're not entirely sure what the exact underlying mechanism and the matrix and the, and the balance of those mechanisms are or is. Um, but in layman's terms, it's basically down to genetics that are involved somehow in how satiated we get from meals and our natural hunger levels. On average, the balance of those two will predispose you to greater or, or, or less calorie intake over time. Um, combine that, obviously, which we'll talk about in a second with environment, and that probably leads, uh, predisposes us to higher or lower uh, levels of body fat. What are the limitations of this theory? Well, it's not a complete theory. The lipostat model doesn't account for all non-biological drives to eat, and that's a problem because there are many non-biological drives to eat. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't take into account lifestyle, behavior, choices, environment, how you were raised. It's purely a genetic discussion of, of the mechanisms behind this homeostatic model, this thermostat, this lipostat. Uh, it doesn't actually take into account all of the other non-biological drives to eat, right? It's purely a genetic discussion. That is a massive limitation, huge limitation. It also doesn't really discuss the idea of having a range, which I think is huge. Um, it, it doesn't really discuss that you might have a range of a set point that you could maintain. And so it is, again, it's really like down to this genetic discussion here. Um, it also doesn't really answer the question of like, well, well then how have we evolved? Like how, how are there people walking the earth at 300, 400, 500 pounds? Like when would we have evolved to have 300 pound set points? Like when, how, how are we describing how that came to be? How is that possible? There must be other factors outside of the genetics and evolution at play here because we, you know, we're only seeing these rates of obesity in the last whatever hundred plus years. And so when would we have had, you know, uh, biological evolutionary changes that would have allowed us to move this set point higher? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, a feedback loop, especially in the context of homeostasis, would mean that there's a maintenance within a certain range, but that's not really what we see within society, especially on the gaining side. Like, why isn't this lipostat stopping people from gaining hundreds of pounds? When would we have evolved to have to, to have uh, processes in our body that allow us to become three, four, 500 pounds? The thing is, we wouldn't. There has to be other things at play, environment and all of this other stuff that comes into play. So uh, obviously that's not the case. Obviously there are also other things factoring in here. 
And so once you admit this as a limitation, that there's a neglect for the, like admitting that there's an environmental and behavioral factor, how do we decide how much of each thing is factoring in? And now that you admit that there's not, it's not just genetics, like let's say you, you're like, okay, it's not just genetics. Like, okay, now do I even have, like the, does the idea of having a set point break down once you admit that it's more than genetics? Does that by definition kind of negate the idea that you could have a set point if all of a sudden there's so many lifestyle factors at play? So that's an important question. Like, does that mean that there's even a set point since it can change with environment and behavior and choices and, and, and upbringing and stuff like that? Um, or, or could you say that that's all factoring into one very broad meaning of a set point where when we talk about set point, we have to kind of, uh, you know, accept that that's part of the definition, which I, I would say in the long term we should, of course. Um, you know, does, what would set point say to, you know, if you asked somebody who believed in set point, if you could maintain weight loss, could you move the set point? It doesn't seem to be the case, at least physiologically, like you can't change your genes, but you can maintain body weight changes via changes in behavior and environment. And so you can change the external factors. So we have to bring these two things together into a marriage that accepts that there's genetic factors and external factors. Um, Gotcha. So the original theory actually does say that you can establish a new higher set point, but not a lower set point, which again, kind of shoots this idea of a homeostatic model in the foot. If you can only move it in one direction, like the, the, the thermostat is not truly a thermostat. If it can only go hotter and never, uh, you know, it's not actually a homeostatic thermostat. Let's say if it can only move in one direction, right? We're clearly missing this external piece that obviously makes this theory very flawed. Cool. Moving along, our next uh, model we're going to discuss is the dual intervention model. And we'll keep this one relatively short because I, after re reading a lot about it, basically what the dual intervention model says is that there, it's essentially the same thing as set point theory, except the dual intervention model recognizes that there is likely a range that genetics predispose, but each individual can probably move within this range based on our behaviors, right? And so it's recognizing that there are behaviors that that allow us to move up and down within a range of genetic ceilings, let's say a floor and a ceiling. And so for just a crude example would be, let's say your genes are predisposing you to being anywhere from 140 pounds to 170 pounds before those mechanisms kick in. If you go below 140, we start to, you, you might start to see a lot of mechanisms that want to pull you back up. If you go above 170, you might see a lot of mechanisms that want to pull you back down. But what the dual intervention model would say is that there's this upper intervention spot and this lower intervention spot. And within that, you can move along or within that, that range based on environment, external factors, behaviors, choices, and stuff like that. Um, which to me makes a whole lot more sense. Um, I'm not saying that that's wholly correct. I'm saying that makes a lot more sense that, hey, we have genes that say, you know, at a certain upper intervention of body weight, you'll have mechanisms that kick in that don't, that, you know, that, that, not prevent, but start to encourage your body to gain less weight. Uh, and the same on the other end, if you start to lose, uh, you go beyond a certain level of body fat, you go beyond a certain uh, body weight range, a level of leanness, you're going to see mechanisms that kick in that want to pull you back up into that range. But within that range, you have a lot of things that you can control, external factors, behaviors, choices, environment, that you can move along that range and maintain that level of body fat. That to me, by the way, just that makes a lot of sense thus far. Um, interestingly, the, a lot of things, you know, we used to think that this lower intervention or this level of leanness, that if you went below, we would start to see these like metabolic adaptations, these adaptations that would want to push you back up into a higher level of body fat. We used to think that this was a, 
um, like an evolutionarily evolutionary defense mechanism against starvation. The people who have uh, come up with dual intervention model actually don't think that that's the case. They think that it's it's more likely an evolutionary model against, um, a, or sorry, a defense mechanism against poor health. So they had said that it would be unlikely that there was so much famine in such long periods that would have caused evolutionary mechanistic changes, like bio, real biological changes. More likely that there's a defense mechanism against the uh, poor health that happens at really low body weights, like infection and sickness, et cetera, that happen at much lower body fat levels, that this is probably more a defense against that, which again, it's just a cool tangent. Um, this upper intervention, you know, would have been, and it's interesting because what would the point have been about having an upper intervention? Think about this. So why, what over the course of our species history would have created this biological upper intervention? Like at what point were we gaining so much weight that it was a bad thing? I doubt that for the last, you know, up until 200 years ago that on average we were gaining so much weight that it was negatively affecting our health across the population for such a long period of time that it was creating you know, biological cascades and, and things that actually changed our evolution, um, changed our biology. And so they said that, you know, the people who created dual intervention model are saying it's probably would have been more about avoiding predators. This idea that over our species history, that gaining a lot of weight would have predisposed us to get eaten by saber tooths more likely, so to speak, um, which makes some sense. It's unlikely we were gaining so much weight for so long in, in back in, you know, thousands of years ago that we would have evolved into this, having this upper intervention to protect us against poor health. It's probably there to protect us against, you know, uh, the excess body fat that would make us uh, worse at avoiding predators, let's say, right? Uh, and then maybe with the evolution of larger hunting groups and the invention of weapons, et cetera, like this risk of predation gets lower and this uh, and lower and lower and this upper intervention becomes worse and worse. Essentially, you know, as we start to, you know, uh, evolve into you know, groups that hunt together and we invent weapons, it's it's less likely that body fatness is going to make people die more to predators. And so we are gently increasing that uh, upper intervention to allow us to gain more body fat without being at risk because we're no longer at risk. And so that might be over the course of, the, you know, thousands and thousands of years that might have allowed us to evolve to have a higher upper intervention would allow us to get fatter before these mechanisms would kick in. Hope that made sense. So now we have these, this lower intervention where it's like, hey, at this level of body fat, below this, we have mechanisms that kick in. This upper intervention point, above this point, we have mechanisms that kick in. But now we have this range, and the main thing at play between these two points would be external factors, environment, behaviors, food choices. A summary of this would be essentially, we have this genetic and upper lower weight range where beyond those points in either direction, physiology kicks in. But between them, we can move up and down that spectrum via external factors. Anything else that I wanted to say with that? So this one, obviously, dual intervention model makes a lot more sense because it recognizes these non-biological factors, these external factors um, that drive eating. Uh, it also recognizes that because there are those factors, that it must be a range because there is such a wide um Within an individual, you can change a lot of those things. And so you can change your range and so, or change your set point. So instead of saying change your set point, it's probably just that you have this range that your genetics set in place. And then within that range, you can modify or move up and down via these external factors. So quick recap, set point theory states that your body weight has a certain set point, And when you go above or below that point, physiology, physiological processes kick in uh, that try to bring you back. I think this is absolutely true to the extent that these processes exist to certain degrees. 
Issues with this theory is that it ignores external factors that influence what and how much we eat and ignores the presence of a range of body weight. The dual intervention model states that there's a genetic range with similar feedback loop where processes kick in. However, it acknowledges that there are external factors that allow us to move up and down within a range, which makes a lot more sense to me. So what are my main takeaways from what we know and maybe some questions about what we don't know? Um, and again, some of these are uh, things that I've repeated numerous times, but these are just a lot of the takeaways that I really want people to have here. It's like, number one, there are genetic factors. Like this is a fact, like where they come from, probably something to do with the hypothalamus communication with the body, uh, something to do with how satiated we get from meals, our natural hunger levels, maybe even dopamine responses to food. And so when we talk about, I made a post the other day about, uh, you know, obesity, is it genetics, is it, is it lifestyle? It's both, it's it, it weight gain, weight range, body fat set point, it's both. You know, XYZ person might get more satiated per calorie per meal than you. She, he or she might be more hungry on average than you. I mean, that person, if left to their own devices, all external factors being equal, is more predisposed for weight gain than you. It's gonna be, they're gonna have a more difficult time maintaining a certain level of leanness than you. And so there are absolutely genetic factors. And we see this, you know, I've been coaching people for a long time and, I, and I've seen this play out in the, in the context of like, hey, if somebody wants to, if I have a guy who wants to get to 10% body fat, um, you know, let's say he gets to 10% body fat, he will have a certain level of difficulty in maintaining that. Now it might not be difficult at all. It might be very difficult, but it's somewhere on that spectrum. Somebody else, you know, similar height, weight, age, gender, all this stuff gets down to 10% body fat, might also have a certain level of ease in which they can maintain a certain level of leanness. Now, how easy it is to maintain a certain level of leanness, again, will come down to some degree to genetics, but it will also come down to your environment, right? Genetics is only half the discussion. Genes load the gun, environment and behavior pulls the trigger. Like whether you have good or quote, good or bad genetics in this context, there's still so much you can do, right? Behavior change, environment optimization. Yes, we live in an obesogenic food landscape and that makes it harder. Um, but there are still a lot of things you can do. Like think like, you know, think about it. If you have a certain level of genetics, let's say you're, oh, I, have, I have, you know, in this context, I have poor genetics. I've, I get really hungry and, my, and I don't get very satiated, whatever. Um, but what if you eat a very low satiety diet, right? It's likely that that range is now higher because, okay, whatever, you have certain genes, but you, have, you are choosing to some degree to eat a very low satiety diet. Maybe you don't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables or lean proteins, you know, a lot of fast food, you know, it's quote standard American diet, not very satiating. And so you've combined your genetics with this external factor that makes you more predisposed to more calories over time. And so that range or where you're living on your range is likely higher. What if this same person increases the overall satiety of their diet? They probably move lower on their body fat set point range, let's say. And so now you have this wide range of like, okay, I have genetic factors that maybe give me an upper and lower ceiling, maybe, but there's a lot that you can do to move up and down within that range and maintain that. Like, you know, what about activity levels? We see that after a certain level of activity, it starts becoming a slight appetite suppressant, right? Something's like 8,000 steps or something, something in the research. If you have somebody who's not doing that and now they're doing that, not only are they moving more, but maybe they're getting a slight appetite suppressant effect. And all of a sudden they move even lower on their set point range. What if they optimize their environment? They start, you know, shopping smarter. They start to optimize their home in a way that, you know, helps their subconscious eat less over time. What about helpful, meaningful relationships? People that support you, having friends and family that are, you know, normalizing your goals. That probably moves you down the, the, your set point range as well. What about stress levels? Stress, stress levels impact how much we eat all the time. A lot of people eat less when they are stressed. A lot of people eat more when they're stressed. 
What about sleep? We know that specifically with leptin um, and ghrelin, if, let's say if you sleep, if you have poor night, if you have poor sleep, we see a uh, decrease in ghrelin or an increase in ghrelin, sorry, which is your hunger hormone, makes you more hungry. And so we have all these external factors. It's like, okay, genetics exist. They probably, to some degree, affect this upper and lower range, but there are still so many things that I can do to move myself down that range and maintain that end of the range, right? Um, so how do we know like what our genetics are? I think people are like, well, I don't know if I, do I have good genetics? It's like, I don't know, does it really matter? Like improving behaviors environment to match your health goals should be something you're probably doing no matter what. No matter what cards you're dealt, it's probably a good idea to be active, to consider what your food environment is like, to consider you know the positivity of your relationships, to consider managing stress levels, consider getting good sleep. Like you probably wanna be doing all this stuff anyway. Um, and maybe you can even guess, you know, maybe you can start to, you listen to this podcast and you can start to take an objective look at your life and, and just how it's played out and what your behaviors are. And you could be like, all right, maybe, maybe when I get really lean, even if I eat very satiated, you know, I can't really maintain that 10% body fat for a guy, maybe 17% body fat for women, whatever. I can't really maintain that that well. I get really freaking hungry. But at the same time, that same person might be like, okay, I can't maintain this because I also don't manage my stress well and I don't sleep well and I'm really stressed at work and you know I have three kids and I have to have candy and, and chips around all the time so my environment's not super great and my activity's kind of low. And it's like, so there's still a lot of stuff we can do and you should probably be doing that anyway. This idea of like, across the board, I get asked this question of like genetics about muscle growth and, and fat loss. Why is it easier for XYZ person, et cetera? Like worrying about what kind of genetics you have I don't really, I've never really understood why that would be important. Like just, there are certain things that you can control and let's spend more time focusing on that stuff and less focusing on like, well, you know, what are my genetics? Now, I think it's important for all of us having listened to my, this last 20 minute rant to understand that genetics play a part totally. And to understand that maybe as you get really lean um, or leaner that you want to pay attention to how difficult this is for you, but you also in that moment want to factor in those external factors as well. Um, could I give a brief summary here? Oof, okay, do I think there's a body? Let's go back to the first questions here. First questions were, does your body really have a set point weight that it will defend? It probably does um, based on physiological processes, but there's likely a wide range when you factor in external factors uh, that you can move along. And so can you move your body fat set point? It depends on how you look at set point. If you look at it as a range, then you probably maybe can't technically move that range, but you can move within that range. Uh, can you maintain it? Sure, probably as much as you maintain those external factors. Is all weight loss futile? Definitely not. Is your body weight range pre? Is your body weight range predetermined by genetics? Maybe if you consider the definition of body weight range to be a very wide range that factors in external factors. Um, and so at the end of the day, it, let me think. Like, how does this play out again? That that same example. If you're somebody who's uh, tried to lose weight, maybe you're in a relatively decent spot, you have a decent body comp and you wanna get even leaner. I see this happen quite a bit. Um, and two people, same body weight, height and age, maybe other factors as well, similar, will try and get leaner and one person will find it a bit easier than the other. That, how easy they find it might is going to be a combination of genetics and uh, external factors. Um, and so I definitely think that recognizing that genetics are a thing and that you know there are things you can control and you should absolutely focus on those, but still understanding that genetics is a thing, that there are different genetics that may predispose you to making it you know, easier or harder to maintain a certain level of leanness that predispose you to some sort of a body weight range um, that that exists. I think that's important. That's part of the reason I made this podcast. I do think that it's important that we understand genetics play a part, 
But man, there's so many things that you can do uh, from an external standpoint, from a choices and behaviors and, and education and you know, optimizing environment. You know, there's things you can do as parents for your kids from raising people, to, uh, raising you know, young people to make those choices or more likely to make those choices, to set good examples, to help them optimize their environment, their relationship with their body. A lot of these external factors that can help you know, make it more or less likely that you live on a certain end of your own genetic predisposed body weight range. Cool. All right. I'm going to end it there before I, I feel like there was a good ramble coming on here, but it was just going to be me repeating a bunch of the same shit. So that's where I'm going to end the podcast. I hope that that made a lot of sense, guys. If you have any questions, you can always reach out and DM me. Um, I hope that that cleared some things up and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.